Welcome back to another episode of Travel with a Chance of Murder. If you've been following us regularly, thank you. Sorry for the hiatus. We've been in a crazy period of life between moving, figuring out what the heck we're doing. (laughs) So we appreciate you sticking with us. And if you're listening live in December, we wish you a happy holiday season and all the best for 2023. But with housekeeping out of the way, we'll just dive right into things. Jamie, do you want to go ahead and tell the people where we're headed this week? We are going to Papua New Guinea. And some backstory for everyone, just about how we chose this destination. Uh, Do you want the truth or the fictitious reason why we chose Papua New Guinea? The truth is, I think, what they're looking for. (laughs) Uh, The truth is, um, you know, because we've been busy with our lives, Cassie's been pastoring me to do an episode and uh, I said, okay, fine, let's pick a country. And I wanted to make it very difficult for Cassidy. Um, so I tried to think of a country which she didn't know. Um, so I was like, you know what, fine, Papua New Guinea. And if I, don't re- if I remember correctly, at that time her face was very scrunched up, like, that's not a country. But it is a country. And um, the subtle hints that Cassidy has gave me towards the story she's found for Papua New Guinea is just quite interesting. Um, I've done my research finally, and Cassie's done her research weeks and weeks ago. So, I mean, it is my fault. This year, uh, podcast is coming up late, but um, oh, we're, we're here now. We're here, and we're making an episode, and I'm sure you guys will enjoy it. But yeah, it's uh, been a busy season for us. We've been traveling Hopefully we'll have some more, maybe even content for you around our trip to Istanbul. And we're off to Zanzibar in Tanzania at the end of the week. So lots of movement in our lives, but that's not what you came here for. (laughs) We'll get straight into what there is to do in Papua New Guinea. And of course, the crime side of things to scare you away. But I'll let Jamie take over. Okay, so let's, you know, like we always do, let's do a whole three, two, one, what we think of Papua New Guinea. Yeah, I am missing the flow. I forgot that we do that. Yeah. Okay, so I'm actually having to think now. And this is, this is a hard one. Okay, I've got one. I'm not very familiar with it. Like you said, I barely knew it was a country. Yeah. So uh, let me try and give it a think. All right, I'm ready. Okay. Yeah. So once again, it's three, two, one, and then we say three, two, one, tribes. Animals. Animals, Okay. Um, yeah, I could, I could see that. Um, there are a few interesting things I'm going to mention regarding animals. A very particular type of animal is very uh, famous, well-known for Papua New Guinea. Calls it home. Yeah, but with my understanding of the country, tribes is the biggest, uh, the biggest thing that kind of like really gives this country um, a unique flavour. So let's go straight into it. Uh, Papua New Guinea uh, is described as a million different journeys. It's an island country in the southwestern Pacific Ocean, north of Australia and east of Indonesia. The islands were settled over a period of 40,000 years. There's a lot of history there. And over this year history, there's lots of different ethnic and traditional groups of people who sprung up and, and you know came together um, but these people are typically referred to as the uh, Melanesians so this year kind of area of the world the country itself encompasses the eastern half of the New Guinea island so the what the big New Guinea island is, is split in two on the left you've got Indonesia on the on the on the right you've got 
uh, Papua New Guinea. And it's actually the world's second largest island after Greenland. So the country has over 600 islands, all varying in, in size, the largest being New Britain, which curves uh, just to the, to the north into New Ireland. So you can obviously guess who colonized this area of the world. <laughs> no surprise there. Yeah, the, the country's got a lot of history related to colonialism, unfortunately. The British, the Dutch were there, the Germans were there, the Japanese were there, the Australians were there. A lot of a lot of people have been there. But anyway. It's given me some flashbacks to Malta a little bit with the cluster of islands. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about history is, and everywhere you go, if it's not Europe, it's been colonised. <laughs> and I know we, we laugh about it, um, but it's, it's the unfortunate truth. But don't worry, I'm not going to go into the, the deep pits of colonialism in this uh, conversation. So yeah, you've got um, New Britain and New Ireland, which is within the Bismarck Archipelago, which is a very interesting name. Uh, some of you out there may all, may also know what the Bismarck is. Any idea what the Bismarck is related to? Something else? Is this another one of your famous causeways? No, no, no. <laughs> No, so the Bismarck is in a, a German battleship from the war. Okay. And um, it's quite interesting because maybe this year uh, archipelago was named after that boat or vice versa. <laughs> Since the country um, achieved its independence in 1975, one of its political challenges have been the difficulty of simply governing many hundreds of diverse, once isolated local societies as a viable single nation. So with all these islands, there's tribes that... Some have never seen human human contact or not human contact, modern technology and stuff like that. Mm. You know, you got tribes that are less than twenty people up to a couple of hundred thousand people. But there is some places, you know, up until the seventies and eighties that these tribes were uncontacted. And it's only relatively recently in the in the terms of modern history, you know, we know we know these tribes. Um, so yeah, that's that's the difficult part. You've got all these here, lots of islands. You've got all of these tribes that have their different cultures or different traditions, um, and more more painstakingly, um, their different languages. So there's actually eight hundred and thirty nine known known languages um, throughout the the islands of Papua New Guinea, which makes it one of the most linguistically diverse countries in the world. So that's that's the difficulty of trying to unite all these tribes. They've got different cultures, different traditions, different islands, different locations, different history, different languages, different cuisines, different, 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 different. So not only are they not used to really seeing people outside of their tribe, but when they do, it's really difficult for them to communicate because chances are they don't speak the same language. Yeah. These languages, you know, because they are islands, and these languages for for Melia didn't interact with each other, so you can get very diverse languages. Um, and you you would assume that these you know tribes are host are are hostile towards outsiders. Um, but it's quite on the contrary; they're actually quite hospitable. Um, and we'll we'll go into that a little bit later regarding the things you can do in Papua New Guinea, which is very interesting. So let's go into a little bit about the, the geography um, of, of the country. Now, the, the, the country's geography is very, very diverse. Um, it's remote and luxurious in some places or extremely rugged and hard in other places. It's a very, very mix of a country. There's a spine of mountains called the New Guinea Highlands, which runs the length of the island. 
which forms a populous highland region mostly covered with tropical rainforest and then you've got the long uh, Papuan Peninsula known as the bird's tail which is like the, the flick if you will on the um, on the east side. So think of, think of a picture of a bird in your head you know you've got the, be the big bustling belly underneath and then you've got the bird's spine on top and then the feathers like the, the not the feet what do you call the backwards feathers? The backwards. tail. The tail. <laughs> The tail of the bird kind of like flicks off to the to the right there, um, <laughs> so it looks like a bird. <laughs> yeah, uh, more about birds later on. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah. So um. You've oh got sorry. Side note: in the place that we just moved to, so like I said, we just moved. Our new apartment has this really amazing wraparound balcony, but every morning we are greeted by a different bird, <laughs> and I think we should start naming them. I think we need to start making them like part of our apartment yeah i mean i just want to point out to people listening that you know when cassie says birds they are not you know birds of paradise they're pigeons okay <laughs> we are being swarmed by pigeons not doves not you know flamingos or anything fancy just pigeons that poo everywhere hey i'm not the one leaving bread out for them sir i left bread out for them <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't even eat it they just came back and pooed everywhere um but yeah, that's enough about our, our pigeons uh, living in you know the desert. Let's go back to the Papua New Guinea uh, rainforest. So uh, yeah, the, the dense rainforests area are usually um, in the lowlands and the coastal areas. Um, to the the north, I mean the north is agricultural land. The south is like uh, swampy, marshy land. So it's a little bit of a mix. You can get them in the north and south. But the, 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 the rainforest is kind of like, not surrounded, but it's cut through um, by two, two major rivers. You've got the Sipek, um, or the Saipek, and then the Fly River. Um, strangely enough, the, the border of Papua New Guinea and um, Papua um, is you've got the border. It's kind of like an American border where it's like flat, or not flat, it's, it's vertical. It's like mm -hmm. literally just someone just drew a straight line through the map. But there's a small section where it's kind of jagged. Um, I'm just going to show you on Google Maps and show you what I mean. Okay. Uh, oh. The, uh, sorry, the island of New Guinea here. Uh, I've got Papua New Guinea. And as you can see, the border goes straight down. Yeah. Except for a little tiny bit, which is just where, just halfway through the, <laughs> the island. Um, in which... It looks like someone forgot how to draw a straight line. It just looks like some kid drawing with a crayon on a wall. Yeah, but in actual fact, it follows the river. Um, and um, it was actually uh, drawn like this whenever colonial powers were in the island and they wanted to make sure no one rioted. So <laughs> the people here, didn't they didn't make their own borders. But it was mostly so that both countries could have resource access to that river? Um... No, it, as I said, it was it was just there was tribes that were a bit naughty, and uh, the colonizers uh, okay. at the time wanted to make sure they weren't too powerful. I guess I, I want, see. yeah. So you've got the you've got the island itself, and it's surrounded by three seas. Can you name the seas? Oh gosh, it's by Australia. Mhm. Mm this is a hard question. I don't expect you to get it. I wouldn't even have got it. We didn't study geography in yeah. school, so I could not name even... Surprise, surprise. The American didn't doesn't study Australian geography. Don't study geography, period. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't even know this is a country. Oh, goodness. Now you're asking me about oceans? No, seas. An ocean and a sea is different. 
Ah, see, there you there go. There we go, okay. For you more um, intellectually astute geographers out there, um, there's three islands that are around Papua New Guinea. You've got the Bismarck Sea, Solomon Sea, and the Coral Sea. Yes, no? No, I haven't heard of them. Okay, Solomon Islands uh, are to the east of uh, Papua New Guinea, and they share the Solomon Sea. So uh, these seas are absolutely beautiful, and um, they're they're littered with um, coral, <laughs> corals, yes, archipelagos, islands, um, reefs, uh, little tiny not oases. What do you call those? Like little small islands that is literally you get like three, two feet. Like a sandbank. A sandbank. No, that's not the word. Like you ain't anyway. It's nice. It's a nice area to go if you want to go scuba diving, snorkeling, boating. Uh, swimming I don't know what animals are in those oceans so I wouldn't risk it um, but it's a nice a nice area however <laughs> there's always a however there's always a however underneath is a very chaotic and dangerous sea monster no <laughs> no well actually there's... gotta bring my half into your half yeah, yeah. I mean <laughs> There's a place inside, there's a, there's a lake inside Papua New Guinea that uh, they believe there's lake monsters in there. Okay. Um, there's no evidence to back this here up. But, I mean, there's lots of, you know, lots of tribes, lots of traditions, there's lots of myths and legends. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me just continue my conversations before you derail uh, <laughs> everything I was saying. So, um, yeah, you've got this here huge mess underneath the, the beautiful seas of um, tectonic plates. So, Papua New Guinea is part of something called the Ring of Fire, and this is not the song by Johnny Cash. I have heard of this. The Ring of Fire? Yep. Down, 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 and I'm burning the Ring of Fire. Well, I know the song, but oh, okay. I also know the natural oh. wonder. The natural, okay, okay. Um, some of you may have heard of it, but um, pretty much the Ring of Fire is the point in which the Pacific and the Australasian tectonic plate smashes together. Hashtag danger zone. Hashtag don't go near this because you're probably <laughs> gonna blow up into a, a volcano or, or whatever. Um, yeah, so because of these here tectonic plates are like crushing toward, uh, against each other, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of underlying fissures, trenches, fault lines, you name it, everything that makes the, the Papua New Guinea country um, incredibly susceptible to earthquakes and volcanic activity. In fact, there's hundreds and hundreds of volcanoes in the country, 67 of which are listed as active. Do you have any volcanoes in your home nation? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think Britain has any volcanoes at all. Because there's no, there's no tectonic plates over there. We have one. Um in Washington. Washington. Oh yes, that's the Mount St. Helens. St. Helena. Yeah. Yeah. St. Helens. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um yeah, well I mean the the thing is that the volcanoes here in Papua New Guinea they're quite as I said they're active. I mean I think one of them erupted in the past decade and um it destroyed an airport. Wow. Yeah. But I mean they built the airport right beside an active volcano, so what are you gonna do about it? Do you know what I mean? Like, like city planning should yeah. have maybe double thought exactly, that one. Exactly, exactly. If you, you know, jump into hot water, you can't complain that you burnt your hand. 
I love that, like, you think of airports in the Doomsday movies and everyone's, like, rushing to the airport to get out of the city and they built it right where the disaster <laughs> is supposed to be. <laughs> That's a good thought, actually. So, yeah, the volcanoes are up there and everyone runs past the airport to get to the boats. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, because of all these here natural um, weirdities, um, the country has, unfortunately... Um, seen a lack of development in terms of transportation and infrastructure such as roads or rail because it's just a nightmare to build um, and actually some of these areas can only be accessible through uh, via foot if um, I was going to say if you're being lazy but it's not really it's you know most people get around through planes and whenever I say planes I mean like they have a plane where you know, four people can squeeze on. Like hoppers. Yeah, hoppers, yeah. They, they squeeze on and, like, the wings barely stuck together with blue tack and... Really strict weight. Yeah, yeah. Codes. They, like, you're worried about them, kind of thing. And because of this, there's actually over 600 um, airstrips in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, that seems pretty significant for the size of the country. Yeah, exactly. But not all of these are paved. Some are just dirt lanes. Okay. So... <laughs> Yay, it's fun. Uh, make sure you bring your, your travel um, sickness tablets. So um, that's a little bit about um, Papua New Guinea. As always, so much we can discuss, but I am aware of the limited time we have. Um, so I'm just going to talk about a few things that you can do in Papua New Guinea and some of the things that are really um, unique. So the first thing you can do is obviously explore the nature. Um, Papua New Guinea is famous for the, the birds they have. Remember they talk about the animals? Yeah. Uh, they've got some marsupials like tree kangaroos and stuff like this but their their main animal focal point is the birds of paradise. They're very beautiful birds. Um, you know at the end of the day it's one of the most I think it's the third biggest rainforest wow. in the world after the Amazon and the Congo. Um, so you get a lot of birds in there tweeting and uh, doing their dances mm. and all very, very colourful. If you're into your historical stuff, um, you can do some scuba diving and, and see some old World War II uh, wrecks. Uh, a lot of fighting happened in uh, Papua New Guinea between the, the Japanese and the Australian forces during World War II. So yeah, you, you, know, you can scuba dive some wrecks. There's just some big battleships littering like the floor of the sea? Not so much battleships, uh, just planes mostly. Um, From my current knowledge, there wasn't any big sea battles. Um, You know, we got to remember that the the closest point between Australia and Papua New Guinea is four kilometers. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of fighting because the Australians didn't want the Japanese to invade their their land. So there's a lot of fighting in in Papua New Guinea. And, you know, if you want to kind of mix that history and mix the the nature you can actually do a trek technically you can trek anywhere in the world because all you need your legs and um, but the the trek of kukata um, track is apparently one of the world's best and um, it's over eight days oh fun yeah we're sleeping bag on your back and yeah yeah so if you're in that kind of mood you can do that it's one of the toughest multi-day tracks in the world um but once again, it's littered with nature. You got your birds of paradise, as I said. You'll see so many animals. You'll see the flora and the fauna, as well as history, um, because the Kukura um, track is home to 
home to, sorry, is where the Kokoda battle happened in World War Two mm-hmm. between the Japanese and Australian forces. So that was like the big battle of, of Papua New Guinea. So you will see lots of destroyed uh, planes, encampment, or not encampments, uh, fortifications, um, lots of things. But this is also the kind of the dangerous part. There will be unexploded ordinance right yeah because that's the kind of thing where if there's not roads they don't really have the ability to go in there and pull that stuff out it's like yeah. once that's downed it's just becoming part of the rainforest at that point yeah yeah so if you are doing this over the eight days um bring a, bring a guide with you because you don't last thing you want is be stepping on something you don't want to be stepping on now something that is you know well known for Papua new guinea is the tribes and you can obviously try to stay with these tribes. Um, you know, we talked earlier about how there's so um, so many different tribes. Most of them are very hospitable to tourists because that's obviously how they make their money. But you can, you know, you book packages which you, which, you, which you stay with the tribes, or you can, you know, you can do a hike to different tribes and then visit them for a day and then hike for a day and stuff like that. But let's just go through a few of the tribes that are very unique that you may want to be um, in contact with. Now, once again, they are not people who. You know, running around with bows and arrows and shoots anybody who, or you know, who comes by. They are hospitable to tourists. So you've got the Huli tribe of the Highlands. Uh, these are probably the most well-known uh, tribe in terms of interacting with tourists. And you can also uh, often, you know, book a package with them if you will, in which they'll they'll you know dress up, they'll do a dance, they'll uh, wear their traditional clothing, their body paint. Um, from my current research, the Huli tribe are the uh, not so much fake. What's the word? Doesn't they? They know you're a tourist. They're putting on a show. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, but then you've got the the lesser, not so much lesser known, the lesser tourist inclined tribes. You've got the uh, Asaro tribe, which are in the eastern highlands, and they're um, also interactive to tourists. Um, but they're most famous for their mud men dance, in which they, they color, cover their body in like an ash and white paint. Um, and they wear these very weird but beautiful articulated decorative masks that are in the shape of monsters. Okay. Um, and they used to wear these hair masks going into battle to scare off their enemies. Um, you've got the Korai and the Kampai tribes, which are known for living in treehouses. Uh, oh, I love that. That's yeah. very fun. Well, how fun would it be if I told you that some of these your tree houses they live in go up to 140 feet or 43 meters tall? Wow. So they have to climb up there. Yes, yes, tree house. You don't get an elevator, they're climbing up. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine one day you roll out of your bed and then. And you just keep rolling? You just keep on rolling. <laughs> you keep on rolling vertically down. Uh, then you got the Baining people. Uh, they're famous for their fire dance, uh, in which they dress up um, as uh, a huge bird and they jump over flames. They walk on hot coals. Uh, or they do all these here ceremonial dances in rhythm to the condom um, drums. The Bilbil people are known for making very elaborate, decorative red clay pots. Um, the Oro tribe. Uh, their women get tattoos on their face um, that kind of resembles a maze, um, like a, a decorative symmetric maze in mm-hmm. uh, really dark ink. The uh, Ibulam, uh, probably pronouncing that very wrong as well, they have, um, they dress up 
a with masks that resemble big massive owls and then that's interesting because in mythology a lot of the time owls are a symbol of wisdom this is the thing about these are tribes um the it's related to nature mm. you know like they are although when they're, they're in the 21st century um they start very they're continuing old traditions yeah so at the time where all they knew was the rainforest yeah like you know for example the, the coastal tribes they didn't use currency up until the 1910s they used shells to pay for things uh there's like four or five different types of shells you can get on the beach and mm-hmm. this was the currency like how cool that be you know what <laughs> i want to buy a pizza tonight okay you know go down to the beach and collect some shells and then give it to a pizza you know i, I know that's not exactly how it works but that's pretty cool and then me you know personally i, I would go to these people um the anga tribe and the anga tribe they practice they still practice to this day mummification they use smoke soot and something else to mum to air dry their dead pretty much and um they keep their dead on display they don't bury them they keep them like hanging on trees and then you know like on, on top of rocks and stuff like that so whenever you come to their tribal village or whatever you can see their dead just you see their ancestors greeting yeah, you yeah just sitting there mummified not as in bandages but as in like their skins just being blackened and, and shrunk because they've been dehumidified don't die there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's Papua New Guinea. There's lots to do, lots of history, lots of nature. As always, I can't cover it all. But I hope you learned something, and I hope you're a bit more interested in going to Papua New Guinea. Cassie's going to lead us off with her story, um, which is crime. Yeah, this is... Cr- uh, well, it's a disappearance. It's a disappearance. So... Once as always, you know, you've, my stuff has brought you into a nice, good mood in which you want to visit the country. <laughs> Cassie's stuff is going to make you scared to visit. So I'm just going to let, uh, let Cassie take it away. Yeah, but to be fair, your content actually fits really well into mine. So I don't know if we were just in sync this week, but yeah, they actually go together quite well. So I'm going to share with you this week the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. And I listened to a lot of true crime, and I hadn't heard the story before, so it was a new story for me, too, as I was researching it. And as I was pulling sources together, I found three of them that were actually from 2022. So I don't know if there was just a resurgence of interest in the case, or if there was a big break. I didn't see that there was any kind of like big update about it. But there was a bunch of new coverage on it. So I am interested to, to get your feedback on what you think about it. Let's go. Let's dive into it. I'll share my sources really quick. Um, I pulled some information from All That's Interesting, Medium, Smithsonian Magazine, History.HowStuffWorks, Observer ID, and Historic Mysteries. My case is 60 years old, so it goes back to the 1960s. So a bit before, I think a lot of your tribes were used to seeing strangers and tourists and opening their doors to the Western world. Um, So the big mystery is that Michael Rockefeller vanished off of the coast of Papua New Guinea when he was 23 years old. His disappearance really shocked the nation and it made a big manhunt to find him. So Michael was from a very wealthy family. He was set to inherit 
um, the oil fortune per se. So his Rockefeller family was very wealthy. Yeah, twenty-five uh, percent of Papua New Guinea's exports are actually in uh, oil, coal, and stuff like that. Okay. Fun fact. <laughs> That's interesting that that wasn't in anywhere of your uh, your half of it. Well, I was leaving it to your story to include the the exports of the country. The tie-in, okay. According to All That's Interesting, Michael Clark Rockefeller was born in 1938, and he was the youngest son to New York Governor and former Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. The family came from generations of wealth and was known as a dynasty of millionaires founded by the great-grandfather John D. Rockefeller, who is one of the most richest people who have ever lived. Yeah. So they're really in good fortune, well off, could basically do whatever they wanted. Michael was kind of expected to follow in his father's footsteps and help to manage the family's empire, but he was really quiet and very artistic, and so the business life didn't really seem like that would be a fit for him. But nonetheless, you know how these giant family empires are. The oldest son usually is kind of expected to step into the father's role once the father retires. Michael graduated from Harvard in 1960 and decided that boardrooms and meetings were not for him and continued to look at what else he could do to support the family business. And he ended up taking a position on the board of his father's museum, which is pretty cool. That's good. His museum? Yeah. Okay. Um, So he's working at the museum, and during this role, he talks to representatives from the Dutch National Museum of Ethnology and decides that he's going to go to, at the time, what was known as Dutch New Guinea. Yeah. And visit the art of the Asmat people. Did you come across them in your, your tribes? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, according to Medium, they are a tribe that is located in New Guinea. They inhabit a region on the southwest coast of the island. They're really dependent on natural resources that are found in their region. So a lot of times there are war going on in the neighboring villages because they're all fighting over the resources that are kind of surrounding them. There's lots of forest and rivers, and they had never seen, you know, even a piece of paper or a telephone. Because, like you were talking about in your half, this chunk of the world is super remote. Yeah. For the Asmat people, wood was really important, and it was believed to be a source of life. So wood carvers in their society were like the elite. They were at the top. Yeah, because they could make all the things you need and all the tools to really make the the society, the village progress. So yeah, I get that. I can see that. Yeah, the, the architects, the builders, the boys. Yeah, exactly. So Michael goes and he studies them. He takes notes in his journal about the practices of the tribe. Oh, so so the, he's, he's, he's already in the tribe. The tribe are hopping off for him to come. He, I mean, I don't have the background about how his inauguration went, yeah. but... Okay. But he's not dead. It sounds like, yeah, they allowed him to be around there. They let him take pictures of them. Um, they just wouldn't let any of the researchers buy any of the cultural artifacts. Fair enough, yep, okay. So they're known to make these really beautiful shields and paddles, drums, canoes. But what they're specifically unique for is the something called the ancestor pools. Yep. So it's meant to embody the spirit of an ancestor. Yeah, so these are relatively similar to the Native American... Um, totem poles? Totem poles, yeah. Yeah, so they're 20 feet giant stacks of uh, men interwoven with crocodiles, praying mantises, 
and other kind of miscellaneous symbols. But the result was this really haunting, expressive, alive poles that carried each ancestor's name. Okay, that's pretty interesting. It's a really nice way, I think, to remember your your partners and your family members. Yeah, the history of your tribe. Yeah, there are memorial signs, right? So they represented that the dead is not forgotten and that if something happened with their death, that they would be avenged and find kind of some sort of retribution. So during his visit, Michael saw lots of these things and it got the idea in his mind that these things would be perfect for his father's museum. No, oh, I see it. I see it. Rich guy goes to tribe. Oh, okay. Right. Hit me with it. On the morning of November 17th of 1961, Michael sets out with two of the local teenagers as well as a 34-year-old anthropologist from the Department of Native Affairs. His name was Rene Wazing. They were going to go down the sea to the southern part of the area. Um, and while they're taking the boat and sailing down the river, tides and winds basically flip the boat over. Oh. So their catamaran goes overboard. They're about 10 miles or 16 kilometers from the shores of West Papua New Guinea and trying to figure out now what to do because they don't have any kind of direction about where yeah. to go. They're 10 kilometers into the ocean. Yeah. Or no, 16 kilometers, 10 miles, 16, whoa. That's, so, quite, that's quite far, yeah. The teenagers begin to swim for the nearest shore um, while Rockefeller and Wazing, who, like I said, was the anthropologist, mm -hmm. decided to wait and hold on to the capsized boat. So they're drifting for 24 hours with no sign of the teenagers and still kind of like, okay, now what do we do? What if they didn't make it to shore? Um, then we're on our own. What are we going to do? We don't have any food. We don't have any water. We're kind of just stuck here floating. You're in the water. You're going to freeze. So at dawn on... Yeah, it's November. <laughs> Water's so cold. So might be their summer. Uh, I mean, they're on the equator, so it's just 24-7, CM season. But still, I mean, you're in the water. You're going to get hypothermia. After dawn on November 19th, Michael told Wassing that he was worried they were going to drift into open sea, like we just chatted about. And about around 8 o'clock in the morning, he stripped down to just his undershorts, tied some of the overturned boat's jerry cans to his belt for buoyancy, and began to swim himself to what he thought would be 10 miles, 3, three to 10 miles. It sounds like they could still kind of seashore. So he decides he's going to swim for it. And that was the last time that anyone has a sight of Michael Rockefeller. Yeah, just because you can walk or run three miles swimming is a different ball game mm -hmm. swimming a couple hundred meters can be yeah you know but fair play i mean if you had the if, yeah he has some buoyancy to him with the jerry yeah, cans that's true. um i think it's a tricky thing too when you you can see it yeah you can't make up the distance though you kind of are like oh like well if i can see it i can definitely make it yeah like it can't be that far so I mean, you never know what plays into people's minds, but when you're worried about drifting into sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get you. And the fact that there's someone else too, right? There's the two of them like, oh, I can't. Like, if I make it, at least we can come back for you or... One of us have to go. So while all of this is going on, the teenagers who swam for it actually were able to make it to shore. And they were able to alert the nearby authorities that the boat overturned 
and the Dutch colonial government assembled a search party and were went to look for uh, Michael and the anthropologist. On November 19th, the same day that Michael began his swim, the search party actually did find the anthropologist clinging to the remains of the boat. Okay. So if Michael would have just stayed there, they would have been, been found. Yeah. But of course, because Michael is rich and politically connected, like we talked about, his family, once they were alerted that the situation happened and Michael was unknown basically where he was, they spared no expense to find him. They sent ships, airplanes, helicopters all over the area looking for Michael or at least some sign of what happened to him. Despite all of these search parties on the hunt for Michael, after 10 days of search operations, Michael's father had to call off the hunt for his son. Which I can only imagine how heartbreaking that is. Yeah. So, of course, it's not impossible to imagine that Michael just was not able to make it to shore. According to Observer ID, the area that Michael disappeared in was considered one of the most dangerous areas in the world. So, another theory that's come about is that saltwater crocodiles, perhaps, um, got to him. Mm-hmm. And these kind of crocodiles are even more dangerous than freshwater crocodiles and just as dangerous as a large shark. This area also has sea snakes, jellyfish that are very venomous. There's powerful currents and powerful tides. So there's a number of things in the water that could have factored into how he didn't make it to shore. Another theory that if he did make it to shore is that there are these really muddy mangroves in the area. So it's really hard for someone to make it on foot through the area like you talked about. It's really hard to navigate and walk through Papua New Guinea. And there's, even on land, snakes, crocodiles, giant lizards. So it's not somewhere you want to be on your own when you're not familiar with this area. Other theories outside of the shark-crocodile thing was just that he maybe wanted to seize the opportunity to get away from having to step into his father's footsteps and be in this business life. He could, you know, use it as an opportunity to just start his own life and... Yeah, do his own thing, kind of disappear without anybody... Exactly. Without knowing. Yeah. yeah. Other people claim that he was just living in the jungle of New Guinea somewhere, but like we said, he kind of just vanished without a trace. Of all these theories, there was some evidence that actually did emerge. So one of the red jelly cans that he tied to himself was found by the Dutch Navy out at sea a few days after his disappearance. But, I mean, a red jelly can. It could be anyone's can. I mean, right? the thing is, you don't really get red jelly cans. But I think you mean a red jerry can. Yeah, sorry. Patrol, like a patrol. <laughs> what you would use for patrol. Patrol? Petrol? Yeah. <laughs> You've been speaking too much? <laughs> Like, I, use my, yes. I, I use my jelly cans to put patrol in. <laughs> yes. There's a red jerry can that is used for patrol. So they found one out at sea. And they kind of think it was one of the ones that he used. Okay. But you can't yeah. ever be certain of yeah. that. There's tons of them. You can't tell. Michael was declared dead three years later in 1964. Three years is kind of a long time to wait, I suppose, for... Nothing. I mean, there's no evidence. The last evidence was a couple of days later when they found the red jerry can. 
in three years. Okay. I mean... I think they have to because what if he, you know, was living in the jungle somewhere and then tried to use a bank card or something a year later thinking, oh, the search has been off. <laughs> but then it, like, alerts their system. You know? Why are you laughing so hard? That is the most silliest reason. <laughs> I don't know. You know, three years living in the wilderness. Oh, I just need to go to Arby's to pick up something. Here's my bank card. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying, though. Yeah, but I mean, I just think that's a very funny explanation you just gave. It just... sounds like their family was quite close, though. So I can't imagine him just, like, piecing out to live in the jungle. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Because of pressure. Yeah. I think it's like one of you, like you said, it's one of those cases that kind of get forgotten about. And then they decided, oh, it's been three years, let's declare him dead. Or there was something else behind the scenes that the family were like, nope, don't declare him dead for tax reasons or something like this. Who knows? Yeah. One of the bigger theories is that Michael was perhaps headhunted or a victim of cannibalism. These practices were part of the Asmat culture, so it's possible that perhaps he just kind of wandered into the wrong area while he was searching for help after yeah. making it to shore. But because of the high profile of Michael's case, after press kind of died down and things went quiet, a author and travel writer, who of course needed a new topic for the next book, stumbled across Michael's story and decided to use it as a starting point for his next story, like I said. So Carl Hoffman, in 2014, started poking around old archives and records of Dutch missionaries and found pages of reports, cables, letters, discussing the case. And it seems like men who were part of the investigation 50 years earlier at the time, now 60 years later, were actually willing to talk. Oh. So anyway, Carl travels down to visit the Asmat people. He's with an interpreter. They don't see a lot of white people, so I think this could have maybe triggered people who are still around at the time that Michael was around. Yeah, they remember. Like chatter within the tribe because it's said that he overheard his interpreter talking to another member of the tribe not to discuss the American tourist who died there. Oh. So the interpreter kind of pressed for some more information and... The name Michael Rockefeller did come up. Whoa! So it's been it's been how many years since it happened? Sorry. This is fifty years. So this is twenty fourteen that he goes Whoa. to do some investigative journalism. Yeah. So now we flash forward. Now we're gonna flash back. So nineteen fifty seven, four years before Rockefeller's expedition, there was a big massacre between two of the Asmat tribes. Yep. So these two tribes killed a bunch of each other. And the Dutch colonial government had only recently taken control of the island. And so they were going to make a big move to stop all this violence and try and kind of quote unquote clean up the island. And so they went about disarming the tribes, but with some cultural misunderstandings, the Dutch opened fire on one of these two tribes that were at war. Oh, okay. And remember when I talked about the ancestor polls, one of the big things are... Honoring the dead and promising revenge. I say yes. You kill my so, you kill my mate. Exactly. Mate. Yeah. And so when Michael Rockefeller came about, he's the first white guy they've uh, seen since yes, this yes, giant yes. conflict. So in the 2014 interviews, it sounds like they came across Michael 
and took revenge for this giant massacre that came about. But of course, it wasn't long before the village came to regret the decision when they saw the giant search that followed looking for Michael. A lot of the people hadn't ever seen a plane or a helicopter before. There's also a big cholera epidemic that swept through the area right after the murder. So then they were like, oh, this is revenge for the killing. So yeah, so I, I kind of understand why the, the villagers are like hush-hush about this, like you said, because the family is so well off. They're seeing planes, they're seeing helicopters, searchlights, lots of people come to the island and modern technology and then there's a cholera epidemic. They, and they believe revenge for revenge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're probably thinking all of these futuristic things that they've never seen before are simply a result of killing this guy michael who yeah they thought was the dutch colonizers from back in the day so yeah they obviously want to say stay hush hush about it Mm -hmm. so after carl's investigation this is like the most widely believed theory about what happened to michael and his disappearance but i wanted to include a quote from michael's twin sister from the observer article where she said Michael's short life had tremendous meaning to his friends and family and so many others. His papers, beautiful photographs, and amazing art collection shows respect for the Asmat people who are so much bigger than this idea. That is his legacy, which I think is very powerful. That if they were the people who killed her brother. Um, yeah, don't shame them for that. You yeah, know, just like don't put the finger on them. Yeah. Um, they're much bigger than that. It's just an, uh, one of those accidents in the world kind of yeah. just happened. Wrong place, wrong time. Today, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has a wing named after Michael, and he is remembered to be a promising young man who had a heart that craved adventure, but potentially just succumbed to some bad luck. Had he not decided to swim towards shore, he might have been discovered with the search party found the anthropologist Wassing and still be alive today. Which is, I think, the craziest thing to think about, that sometimes it just comes up to bad luck or chance yeah. that... There's nothing... You, you live know, or you die. Yeah, uh, like, he could have uh, swam in a slightly different angle and reached a different beach. Mm. Uh, and, you know, maybe a current moved him a little bit that resulted in him going to this here area or... Yeah, lots of different things. And like you said, just it's bad luck, mate. Yeah, they would have gone out earlier or later in the day where the tide would have been different and the water not so crazy or... Small things. So many. But that is the story of Michael Rockefeller and his disappearance. Thank you for joining us for Papua New Guinea. Yeah, thank you very much. I know it's been a while since you've, you've heard of our beautiful voices. We wish you a happy holidays, and we'll see you at our next destination somewhere around the world. Bye-bye. On behalf of the flight crew, thank you for flying with us, and have a pleasant day.